So we've been in this reading plan, and we've been in the Old Testament for seven months, and we concluded last week where it was the last prophetic word before 400 years of silence, and in the sense that God did not say anything through any prophets for 400 years. And then one day, after 400 years of silence, that's a long time, right? It's a long time. That's like 150 years more then the United States has been established. And so that's a long time. And then one day, there's a priest doing his daily duties, and, um, and he gets chosen to go and offer incense and, and take care of the, the, the holy place. And he goes in, and as he's ministering to the Lord and doing his priestly duties, an angel shows up. Gabriel says, hey, it's time. You know, it's like 400 years of silence and all of a sudden God says to Gabriel, go, announce it. It is time. And so an angel shows up to Zechariah and says, hey, you are the chosen family to give birth to the person who is going to prepare the way, the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. And he says this about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. Just to give us a little context, he says in verse uh, 17, he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord a people prepared. And what's uh, interesting about that verse is that that is the last verse of the Old Testament. The last verse in the Old Testament, he said, there will be someone who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. And Gabriel says, now's the time. Silence is broken. The word came through and then he appears to Mary and says, Mary, you are the chosen, blessed to be the mother of the Messiah. And the silence is broken. And the light shines in the darkness. Um, although that all takes place, as I just read out of Luke, we are going to spend our time in John chapter 1. If you want to flip to John chapter 1, and we don't just want to uh, rip open our Bibles and start reading it. You really want to know what you have in your hands. And so let's get some context to where we are in history. And, and as we've been journeying through the Old Testament, I've kind of been updating us on where the nation of Israel is. And so this might just be review for you, but maybe uh, this is your first week with us and just want to get you on the same page. Um, so the, the nation of Israel had split uh, at one point in time, and they had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. One was called Israel, one was called Judah, and the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, Israel, and Judah kind of held out for a while until the Babylonians came and uh, demolished them, knocked down their, like destroyed their temple and their walls, took them into captivity, and they spent a lot of time in captivity. Then uh, the Persians took over Babylon, and now they're in the rule. And one of the leaders of Persia allowed the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the temple. And so they rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah comes. He re helps reestablish the walls. And they begin to rebuild the city of God. And then Malachi, he prophesies right at the end of that. So right after that, he prophesies, and then silence. And in that period of 400 years of silence, Greeks come to power. And they, they dominate all over the, the known world. They are dominating, which is, which is really good because then Hellenism is spreading throughout the world. Hellenism being the culture and, and, uh, and language of the Greeks. And so everyone in most of the world is beginning to speak the same language. And then uh, after their Rule kind of diminishes for a while. Then Rome comes to power, and Rome dominates and builds a lot of roads. You know, the Roman roads. They're known for the roads that they built. Um, and then they create peace. So this is a prime time. Why did Jesus come at this time in history? Well, it's a prime time because, one, everybody spoke the same language. So the gospel could spread rapidly around the world in Greek. 
And then secondly, because there were good roads to travel on, so the gospel could spread rapidly to different places in the world. And thirdly, because there is relative peace under Rome, that there wasn't a lot of disturbance, so it was a great time for the Messiah to come, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it to reach as many people as it did. And so that's where we find ourselves. But now we're in the gospel of John. John chapter 1, and uh, who wrote John? Well, um, unsurprisingly, the, the John wrote John. Uh, it's named after the author. And um, John is the son of Zebedee. He, his older brother's name was uh, James. And um, this John is the one whom Jesus loved. In his gospel, he doesn't ever kind of really mention his name as much as he just says the one that Jesus loved, which is just so Awesome, right? <laughs> um, I'm, too, I'm too humble to mention my name. I'll just let you know. I'm the one that Jesus loved. Okay? And uh, he's one of the 12 apostles, but more than that, he's one of the three. One of the three apostles that was closest to Jesus, that experienced things with Jesus that no one else experienced, like the Mount of Transfiguration. John was one of the only three that were up there. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Christ's crucifixion, he said, he grabbed his three closest disciples and said, come pray with me. That was one, John was there for that. And um, Jesus nicknamed John and his brother the Sons of Thunder. The Sons of Thunder. And some of you are fond of calling my twin boys the Sons of Thunder. And so that is a, a, an affectionate name there. John was the only disciple to witness Jesus' death. Every other disciple scattered and ran. John was the only one that was there at the foot of the cross and witnessed his death. While, uh, while Jesus was on the cross, he entrusted the care of his mother Mary into the, the hands of John. He said, John, care for my... This is how close Jesus is to John. John was the first disciple to see the tomb empty, because he beat Peter, didn't he? John was a leader um, with Peter in the early church, and uh, he lived into his 90s. He was the last uh, disciple to die. He was the author also of the book of Revelation. And um, he, he died while in exile on the island of Patmos. So that's who wrote the book. Now, what is the book? Um, what's, what's going on with this book? Well, while the synoptic gospels, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And while the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar. They're kind of telling the same things, maybe from different perspectives and with the different audiences in mind. But it's a lot of the same stuff. John is not a part of the Synoptic Gospels. John, 90% of the book of John is unique to John. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, should a tyrant succeed in destroying the, the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the Epistle of Romans and the Gospel according to John were to escape him, Christianity would be saved. So in, in Martin Luther's mind, he's like, John is in the top two best books in the Bible. And so we are holding in our hands today, we're not doing a whole series on the book of John, this is just one sermon, but we are holding in our hands a, a very unique, special book in the canon of Scripture. One of the things that makes John so unique is that he explicitly gives the purpose for his book so we don't have to wonder why he's writing. And this is in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's the one who he said, my purpose is to get you saved. <laughs> my purpose is to write so that you, I'm all, Jesus did a lot of stuff. He did a lot of stuff, and all the books in the world could not hold all the things that he did. I'm telling you exactly what you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing on him, you may find life in his name. And that's my prayer for you today, that you would find life in the name of Jesus as you believe on him. So, uh, let's read John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, and then we will pray. Are you there? Are you ready? All right, here we go together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, at who, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you for breaking the silence. I thank you for coming in the flesh. I thank you for living a perfect life and dying on the cross for our sin. I thank you for writing us a book so that we can believe in your name. And I pray that that would occur today as we seek to see who you are and why you came. I pray that you would give us faith to believe in you. Some for the first time and some just a renewed strength of faith. Come, Lord, speak through me, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever noticed how spiritually dead and morally dark our world has become? Or I say it has become, it's always been this way. And, and sometimes as, as you go through life, you feel like things are getting worse and worse. Or maybe your perspective is maybe they're getting better. I don't, I don't know. But it seems like our world is getting increasingly dark. And there's not a lot of spiritual life or vitality, at least true spirituality. And, or even more personally, have you ever felt spiritually dead or dark? Or maybe dry. And maybe you've been in a season where it, you don't feel like the life that you feel like you should have in Christ. Or you don't feel the refreshment that you believe you should have. That's a problem. That's a problem. What is the solution? Well, I think we're going to see today is that God notices there's an issue in the world. And uh, out of his love, he comes to bring a solution to the problem, namely sending his son to redeem the world. And so today what we're going to look at is to, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see who he is and, and then why he came. And so I'm excited to jump in this study with you. The first thing that we see in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is eternal God. If you're taking notes, Jesus is eternal God. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning. you know. So, so Matthew starts his gospel going all the way back through the genealogy, all the way back to, do you know, do you know? Abraham. Okay, pop quiz, you failed. Abraham. Luke, I'll give you another chance. Luke, he starts his gospel. He goes way back to, do you know? Adam, yes. And you would think you can't go any further back than Adam, but John ones up them all. And he says, oh no, we're going back even before Adam to the beginning, which should give us, have we heard this language before? It seems like John is intentionally using parallel language to Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so he's intentionally connecting the word here, what we know as Christ, intentionally connecting him to Genesis, that he 
is the God who's in the beginning. Now, he has to use time language because that's how we understand things. But God lives outside of time. And although we can only think back to the beginning, he existed before the beginning. And he's, he's trying to connect the fact that Jesus is the eternal God who existed before anything else existed. He was already in existence in eternity past. Jesus says this himself in his prayer in John 17, uh, verse 5, where he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So even personally, Jesus is claiming to be eternal God. So he says, in the beginning, he's God eternally, was the word. The word, this is the Greek logos. Um, this is significant both to Jews and to Greeks. So the significance to Jews is they had a, a Hebrew equivalent to this word logos, and they would, add, they would use this, this term to refer to God. This is what they would call God. Because the Jewish people so revered the name of God, Yahweh, they didn't, felt like it was, an, it was so perfect and holy that it was unspeakable. And so they didn't refer to God by his name given to us. He, they referred to him as Adonai, or uh, they would say the name, or the word. And so whenever he says, in the beginning was the word, the Jewish mind immediately connects that, oh, he's speaking of God. But it's also significant to the Greeks because the Greek philosophers of the day had this idea that uh, they could see everything in the natural world as you observe the world and all the order and consistency in the world. Like every day the sun rises and sets and, and there's seasons every year and they just see the consistency of creation. And so in their minds, their idea was that the a divine reason is one, one, one way that they would think of this, that the divine reason was the thing that kind of gave life to all the order in the world. And so they didn't think of it as God necessarily. Um, they definitely didn't connect it to what, what the Jewish faith was, but they, def they had this idea of the logos that preexisted everything that we know. And so here, whenever he starts, he's like, okay, Jews, who you call God, the word, I'm going to show you that that's Jesus. And Greeks, who you believe in this idea of the word, I'm going to show you who that is that you are talking about. It's Jesus who created all the things that we know. Jesus in the Old Testament, um, I'm sorry, God's word in the Old Testament, was his divine self-expression. And so Jesus is the divine self-expression of God. He's the message or the expression of the mind of God. And this is even the name that, um, that we will call him in the future. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, it says, he clothed in a robe dipped in blood, speaking of Christ here in the future. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood in the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is Jesus, the word of God. But maybe you've noticed that the Bible also refers to the Bible as the word of God. Romans says that faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of God. Timothy says to preach the word in season and out of season. So how is the Bible referred to as the word of God, but also Jesus is referred to the word of God? Here, here's the explanation that was helpful for me. Um, the Bible is God's revelation transcribed. Jesus is God's revelation personified. The Bible is God's revelation transcribed. Jesus is God's revelation personified. And the written word exists to point us to and to bring us into relationship with the living word. The word of God, Jesus himself. 
So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Interesting that he's God. It says he was in the beginning uh, with God, and he was God. How, how is that? So he, he gives this teaching of what we know today is the Trinity, okay? This is the best a way for us to understand this. The, the, the Trinity is not uh, taught specifically as far as Trinity. It's a word we come up with to describe what the Bible teaches about who God is. And here he's saying there, there's different persons in the being God. That the Word was with God, so he's distinct from God, but he's also God. But he's not talking about multiple gods. It's complicated, okay? It's complicated. He's the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is uh, equal in essence as God, yet distinct in person. The, the Trinity as we know it um, is, think of it as one what and three who's. One what and three who's. One what God, three who's, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equally God, but they are distinct in their persons. And um, I think it's important to point out that we as Christians do, are not tritheists. We don't believe in three gods. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. But he is three persons. I give it to you that we can't fully comprehend this idea. And I would give you an illustration or an image or something to help you understand, except for all the illustrations, humanly speaking, fall short, and therefore I'd probably be teaching you heresy. Because there's a lot that people try, and they all fall short of, of adequately portraying the essence of the Trinity. Um, I, I think we have to understand that we can't comprehend God because God is holy. Holy meaning that he is other. He is different than us. He is a completely different being. He's not a smarter version of ourselves. It's not like God is just the elite being of humans. He is a completely different being. And um, Jesus is not only bigger than you can, bigger, Jesus is not only bigger than you think, he's bigger than you can think. J.P. Morgan, uh, J.P. Philip, not J.P. Morgan, no, sorry, sorry, J.P. Phillips says, if God were small enough for me to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for me to worship. And so it's okay for us to live with a sense of mystery, that God is bigger and different than we can figure out. And, uh, and that makes him worthy of our worship. So we have to be willing to say, this is what the Bible teaches, don't quite understand it. Um, but then we also see in here that he's the creator. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, we see this also in verse 10 where he says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world was made through him. Um, all things were made through him. So he's saying, hey, the creative element in the beginning, God spoke and the worlds were formed. The word is Jesus. He's the element of creation. I think this is important because uh, other faiths, uh, maybe what we would consider cults, would affirm a lot of things that we believe about Jesus. But yet they make one distinction. Um, one important distinction is in, in, in John 1, <clears throat> if you're in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they add uh, one little, one little, little one-letter word that changes the meaning of it totally. This is how the Jehovah's Witness Bible reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. 
And so they would affirm a lot of things that we believe about Jesus, except for they would say that Jesus was the first of the created beings. Okay, listen, just keep reading. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is not a created being. He has always existed as God, and this idea is affirmed in Colossians uh, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, not firstborn in the sense of first created, firstborn in the sense of highest ranking. Listen, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And for him. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Amen? All things are held together. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? He's holding it all together. And I'm glad he's holding it all together, which gives me peace that I don't have to hold it all together. Did you know the survival of the planet does not fall on my shoulders or on your shoulders? We've got to be good stewards of what God has given us. But the arrogance to think that the survival of the planet falls on human beings. What arrogance. Jesus is holding all things together. And it says, one day, he's going to be like, and let it all fall apart. And there's nothing you can do to prevent it. And he's going to say, let's start anew with a new heaven and a new earth. So he is the creator. He is the source of life and light. Verse 4, he says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. He brings life to a dead world. He shines light into a dark world and thank God that he did. The implication is this, that if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, the source, the only source of light and life, then you are, in a sense, dead and in darkness. And he's the only source that can bring you out of that. All right, so Jesus is eternal God. The second uh, point is that Jesus, is, uh, Jesus became a real man. Let's flip on down to verse uh, 14. Jesus became a real man, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. Are you noticing this? John, in, um, in the biological record, is older than Jesus. He was born before Christ. Yet he, in his own admission, says, he ranked before me because he was before me. How did that happen, John? You can ask him. Uh, it's because Jesus was eternal. I think that's the idea. 16. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. So the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Um, this is the, the incarnation is the idea that the divine put on flesh, meat, incarnation, like carne asada, you know, like you like the carne asada, that means meat, you know, you're getting meat. Anyways, this is the theological term, the hypostatic union. I brought a fancy word so you'd think I'm smart. The hypostatic union is what this is, and it's a fancy word in, in English, but it's really a, a really simple idea. And um, it, the hypostatic union means personal. And so it's the, um, the hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. 
the nature of God and the nature of humanity, that Jesus has two complete natures, that one is fully human and one is fully divine. This was not, don't think of this as an instance of subtraction. Uh, Don't think that that God in any way diminished his uh, divinity or deity by putting on flesh and becoming a human. It's not an instance of subtraction, it's an instance of addition. That God, Jesus, added humanity to his deity. Uh, One way it's said is that he, um, he is undiminished deity in unprotected humanity. And so he put on flesh. God put on flesh. And he says in verse 18, No one's ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Previously, uh, God was the invisible God. And, and, and the Father is still, uh, the Holy Spirit is still the invisible God. But Jesus, whenever he came, he made visible what was previously invisible. He allowed people to see what, what could previously not be, be seen. If you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. I wonder, what, I wonder what God's look like. Look to Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God, his visible representation on earth. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he didn't diminish his deity at all by putting on humanity. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. Fully God, fully man. But here's the question I had. I actually had this question earlier in the week before John ever came up in the reading plan. Here's the question that I had. Why? We know, Jesus, I mean, the story of Christianity is that God, Jesus came and, and lived a perfect life and died. Like, we know that Jesus came and was incarnate. Why did he have to, like, God could have chosen any way to save the world, right? It seems like he could have set it up in a different way. Why did he choose to become human? I think there's probably a lot of answers we could give to this. Um, for the sake of time, we'll cover two. The first is this. Um, God desires to sympathize with our weakness. God desires to sympathize uh, with our weakness. Look at verse 14 again. He says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt among us. Literally, this means that he pitched a tent. He moved into the neighborhood. He, the idea is he tabernacled, which should bring our mind back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Whenever they spent 40 years in the wilderness, they hadn't had a permanent temple God had instructed them to build a tabernacle. It was a temporary tent for the presence of God to dwell and for people to have a, a place to worship. And, and so they would pop up this tabernacle, this tent, and then whenever they moved, they'd tear it down and they'd move and, they, and they'd pop it up again. And the presence of God was going with them throughout their journey through the wilderness. It was the place where God's presence dwelt on earth. And what he's saying is we no longer go to a place to meet with God. We go to a person to meet with God. We no longer have to go to a place to worship. We go to a person to worship. Once Jesus came, he became the center of our worship. In the, in the Jewish system, the temple or the tabernacle before the temple was the center place of their worship. And he's saying, now there's a new thing. He says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law served its purpose. And now there's a new thing happening, a better thing happening. Jesus now is the center of our worship. And he wanted to 
relate to us. So he came to be with us, to dwell among us. <clears throat> there was a, I was speaking with a pastor friend of mine, and we were kind of talking about different uh, contemporary worship music, and um, there's, there's some debate on different songs and artists and stuff that you should or shouldn't sing in church. And, um, and we got to talking because there's some songs that are uh, all really good except for like one line or one verse. And so we start, we're talking like, do we throw out the whole song because there's one problematic line in the song? And one in particular that we're talking about was, what a beautiful name. What a beautiful name it is. You know, it's a beautiful song, right? There's one line that has been problematic for some people, and that is, um, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. You know it? That's a little problematic, um, primarily because it, it centers the universe around us and heaven around us, when really heaven is all about Christ. And so some people have an issue with that. And so he said at their church, I thought that was creative. He said at their church, we just changed that verse because the rest of the song is really good. So he said, we changed the verse to say, we couldn't reach heaven without you. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. And that's the case. He's like, I'm not requiring you to reach heaven. You can't do it. If you wanted to reach me in your own strength, you couldn't make it. And so I came to you. Because I want to know you. And I want you to know me in a deeper, more intimate, more relational way than simply this deity in the sky. I want a personal, intimate, near relationship with you. And uh, we see this also kind of explained further in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, he says, since we have a high priest... Now, high, high priests in the Old Testament, they, their job was to minister to the Lord and then to minister to people. They were the mediator between God and people. They spoke to God on behalf of the people, sacrificed to God on behalf of the people. So they're this mediator. He says, but since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. He's like, we have a greater high priest. Now there is one mediator between God and and man, you don't have to go to a priest to confess your sins any longer. One mediator between God and man, that is Jesus Christ. Verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's the result of that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I love this because we've been studying the Old Testament and what we've seen as a common practice in Old Testament kings is you didn't approach the throne. Your common peasants didn't just walk into the throne room without dying. And he's saying, that's not what God's like. You're like the son of the king. Yes, he's the king. Yes, we should honor and revere who he is, but you can come boldly, confidently, knowing that as you walk into the throne room, it's a throne room of grace. And there's not going to be punishment there. There's going to be welcomeness there. But I love this line from these verses where he says, we do not have an, a, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. Uh, a good definition of sympathize is to be affected with the same feelings as another. To be affected with the same feelings as another. There's something that happens when you've shared an experience with somebody, even if you haven't shared it with them personally, but you've had the same experience. Like whenever uh, my wife and I, if we go to like a birthday party and there's people we don't know, and then we meet a couple who has twins, there's just this immediate connection of they get us. They get us, you know, because ch raising children is, is a thing, but there's something 
uniquely joyful about <laughs> raising, raising twins. And it's amazing. When it happens, you just, you just immediately feel like you get each other. They understand. Um, and, and, and maybe you've experienced something similar where you meet somebody, total stranger, but if they've experienced something unique that you've experienced, there's just this connection. And, and Jesus is saying, I, I have that connection with you. Whatever you have experienced, I have experienced. Whatever you have felt, I have felt. And I want that level of connection with you. If you have lost someone near to you, he says, I, I know that feeling. He lost his cousin, John. John was beheaded while Jesus was ministering. He lost his best friend, Lazarus. And he wept over it. He knows the feeling of losing someone. If you've been tempted, you're struggling with some sin or temptation, Jesus knows the feeling of temptation. It says right there in Hebrews that he is tempted in every way, yet without sin. And you might say, yes, Jesus, yes, he's been tempted, but he's never sinned. So he doesn't really know the struggle because he's never sinned. So he doesn't know what I'm going through. Um, yeah, except for he's felt the full weight of temptation. Like, which one uh, feels the full weight? Like, the bodybuilder, you have two people in the gym, one comes up with the big weight, tries to lift it, and then falls on their face. The other guy comes up, and he lifts it above his head, and he holds it. Who felt the full weight of the weights? The one who holds it, without dropping it. And so in a sense, Jesus actually knows the full weight of temptation like we have never experienced because we oftentimes drop it and fall into sin. And so he knows to a full extent the temptation that you have experienced, yet he has not sinned. So if you're struggling with something, Jesus knows what that's like. If you've been rejected Jesus knows the feeling. If you're single and you're struggling with your singleness, Jesus was single his entire life. He knows what that's like. But at the same time, if you're struggling in your marriage, Jesus also knows what that's like because he's married to us. We're the bride of Christ. Can you imagine what he has to go through being married to us? He knows what it's like to be in a difficult marriage, doesn't he? <laughs> Sorry, Lord. Sorry. He knows what you're... If you're struggling financially, Jesus knows what that's like. He didn't live a lavish life here. The foxes have holes. Not me. I have nowhere to lay my head. But also if you're trying to figure out how to maintain integrity among success. Jesus knows what that's like, too. He knows what it's like for tens of thousands of people to show up to hear him speak and to want to make him king. He knows the allure of more and more success and how do you handle that in a way that honors God. If you're facing a life-threatening illness, Jesus knows what it's like to face death at an early age. He knows the feeling. He knows the feeling. He can sympathize with our weakness. Jesus probably knows what it's like to stub his toe and... Uh, how do you respond in a godly way? <laughs> to deal with a hangnail, to, uh, to bump his head, to step on a nail. You know, like he, he's experienced the full array of what it means to be human. But he not only knows everything in the sense as God is, is omni, uh, omniscient, all-knowing, he has felt what you are feeling. He has experienced what you are experiencing. He relates to us in a very deep way. 
And in the same way that we bond with people that we have shared experiences with, Jesus wants to bond with us. And so he came, he left heaven to come to us to sympathize with our weakness, to create a a relational bond with us. The second reason why Jesus came for our time purposes today is that because God requires a sacrifice for our wickedness. God requires a sacrifice for our wickedness. If we're in the uh, Gospel of John and uh, out of the text, just still in chapter 1, but in verse 29, as John the Baptist begins to preach repentance to people and they begin to confess their sins and be baptized in obedience, um, Jesus walks up. And as John sees Jesus in, in, chapter, in verse 29 of chapter 1, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That in the Old Testament system, They would sacrifice a spotless, perfect lamb to cover the sins of a family temporarily. And they longed and looked forward to the day where there'd be a once and an ultimate sacrifice for sin. And John sees Jesus coming and says, he's the sacrifice. He's the atonement. He's the one who's going to once and for all settle our issue of sin. See, the story of redemption in the Bible is that we have all sinned against a holy God, and that there's none righteous. No, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then God, because he loves us, he wanted to redeem us and he wanted to rescue us. And so in his mercy, he determined that that if there was one righteous person among us, He would allow the punishment and the consequence for all of our sin to be placed on the one righteous person. In a sense, that he would take one for the team. But as God surveyed the world, he couldn't find one righteous person. For there's none righteous. Not one. And so seeing that there was no righteous person, the Bible says that God's own arm worked salvation for him. That he sent his son, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, that divinity met humanity and both merged into Jesus being fully God and fully man. He was born and he lived a sinless and righteous life. He became our atoning sacrifice in our place on the cross. And if we put our faith in him, we can have our sins forgiven and we can be saved. This is the great exchange. Why did he put on flesh? Why did he become human so that he could be the appropriate substitute for human beings. Uh, John Piper uh, has a great quote about this whole idea. I wanted to share it with you. I felt it helpful for me. He says, Jesus came to give his flesh. He He came to give his life for the life of the world. He came to have flesh that could be pierced by nails. He came to have flesh that could be pierced with a sword and lacerated on his back and a crown of thorns pressed somewhere in the universe, namely on the fleshly head of the Son of God. And cheeks that could be slapped around and a beard that could be pulled and eyes that could be spit upon and the saliva would drip down. That's why he came. That's why he needed flesh so that he would have something with which to die, something with which to suffer. That's the only way grace 
can come to sinners. That's why he became a human. Because God requires a sacrifice for our wickedness, for our sin. And he substituted himself in our place for our sin. Will you receive him or will you reject him? The Gospel of John, um, one of the saddest verses in the Bible is in verse 11 of John 1. It says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. We could translate this, He came home, and His family did not receive Him. They rejected Him. Will you receive him or reject him? He goes on to say, though, in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If we go back to the purpose of the book, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Will you believe on Him today? Jesus is the eternal God who became a man because He desires to sympathize with our weakness and because God requires a sacrifice for our wickedness. And if you believe in his name, he will forgive you of your sin and bring light and life to your dark and dead soul. Just trust him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would breathe life into dead souls today. I pray that you would work the miracle of salvation. God, that you would enlighten us to see you for who you are and to trust you for the forgiveness of our sin and the source of our eternal life. I pray that we'd know you intimately today. pray that for those of us who believe on you, that we would not see you as a distant deity, but that we would press into a personal, intimate relationship that you desire, and that we would be comforted by the reality that whatever we are facing, you know what it's like, and you comfort those who are in affliction. Help us trust you, Lord. Save somebody today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.